So I really enjoy this story that has made its way into a children's Bible, but might not be a classic children's story the way we might typically hear them. Although I think the Beginner's Bible did a great job of relaying what it meant for the people to be challenged to this worship time. But what I really like when we get a little bit fuller example of what's happening here as we read that from scripture is the ways that one, Elijah's just a little comical about everything that's happening, but there's also great imagery that we see taking place in this. First, a little bit of the history that we're seeing here. We're into this time of the Old Testament, past the three kings of Saul, David, and Solomon, and past that now, and King Ahab, who's married Jezebel, is no friend of the people of Israel. He's brought his own gods, these Baals, these statues, and told people that that's where their true allegiance should be, that's where their, their worship should be. So in the midst of that now, they're in the midst of drought. And Elijah has been telling King Ahab that all of this is because they're not worshiping the right God, which only makes King Ahab all the more angry. And so when he again encounters Elijah, Elijah says, we've got to put an end to this. We've got to decide once and for all how this will be. And so he invites all of the prophets of Baal, 460 of them, and of the prophets of the God of heaven, there is one left, Elijah, because some other prophets have been killed along the way. So Elijah against 460 prophets of Baal. They all march up Mount Carmel. And just for good measure, 400 uh, prophets of Asherah, another kind of one of the Baals, are also invited to come up as well. And then Elijah sets before the people a very interesting idea. He says, if Baal is the true God, then let's, wor let's worship Baal. Or if the God of heaven is the true God, let's worship that God. So Elijah does not come and tell the people this is a foregone conclusion. He may have had insight into the fact that it was, but he presents this out to the people so that they can realize this is a, a, a real opportunity for them to understand where God's power really lies, whether it lies within, within these statues like King Ahab is, is putting up, or whether it lies with this God of heaven that he continues to call on. But he puts it out for the people as simply, let's find out. And so he tells the prophets of Baal to build their altar, and they do, and they, 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 they slaughter the bull, they put it all on top, and then he says, Go for it. Let's set this altar on fire. The thing is, you can't touch it. You just have to let your God bring fire to this altar. And so they start dancing around, calling on Baal to bring fire to their altar. And they dance for a while, for a couple of hours at least. And Elijah does start taunting him. I love the way the children's Bible says it. Maybe your God's on vacation. That's really kind of what Elijah says. Maybe Baal's asleep. Yell louder. So they yell louder. Maybe, maybe Baal went on a journey. Call him back. They try to call him back. When nothing's working in that kind of Old Testament, really sort of gory imagery, it mentions that they even take their, their swords and they, they cut themselves so that blood will flow from them, thinking that would appease Baal and Baal would finally show up. Now, we might, we might already know 
Baal wasn't showing up. We know Baal was just a statue built by human hands. There was no real power there. But those people really didn't know it at that time. So they danced around, cut themselves, bled to see if that God would have any power and finally just gave up. And now it's Elijah. After 460 people have been dancing around one altar, Elijah now starts constructing his altar. Now, again, remember I mentioned this was after the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon. And after the time that Israel had fractured, 10 tribes in the, in the north called Israel, but still two tribes in the south called Judah. But Elijah takes 12 stones, honoring all 12 tribes of the original Israel to build up his altar. And then he puts the wood on top and the sacrifice on top, but he's not done yet. There are four water jars there, and he says to fill them up and pour those four water jars over the altar. And then for good measure, he sort of dug around it in case any water spilled out. It could be caught there around the altar. But four really wasn't enough. Elijah said, do it a second time. Now, if you're in the midst of drought and you're taking four jars of water and simply pouring them over a, a sacrifice, you have to be thinking in your mind, this is kind of wasteful. We could do a whole lot of other things with this water, but they still do it a second time. So they've done four and four, quick with math, that is, eight times they have poured these water jars over the sacrifice. And Elijah says, do, do it a third time. So now how many water jars are poured over the sacrifice? Twelve. Twelve stones for the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve jars of water, fun for each of the original tribes of Israel. So that, that this is an inclusive way that everybody is invited to see the power of God. And then Elijah does not dance around the altar. Elijah does not cry out aloud. He simply steps to the side, talks to God, and prays that God's power would be made known. And all of a sudden, fire comes down from heaven to start consuming this sacrifice. Now we know here in Colorado that if you've been in the midst of a severe drought, the last thing you're actually looking for is fire to come down and be a part of the world around us. But in this instance, as Elijah stands back and watches, the fire is so controlled, it simply consumes up the sacrifice, consumes up the wood, consumes up the altar. And in this beautiful imagery that Vicki read for us, it says that in the end, even the water in the trench was licked up. You get the idea that, that God is so pleased with this sacrifice that is set before God that there's this licking up, this consuming of everything that is set before God. And in the midst of that, the people realize instantly that all of these, all of these statues, all the Baals that have been erected have no power whatsoever and they fall down to worship the one true God. Well, the prophets of Baal, they just take off. They're, they're gone. 
And then at the end of the story, we get this little clip that Elijah kneels down there on the top of Mount Carmel, and he has a servant with him. And he says to the servant, go out just, just over here and, and take a look at the, the lake that's out there and tell me what you see. And the servant goes out, looks at the lake, comes back and says, I, I don't see anything. He says, go look again. He goes out, he comes back, he says, I don't see anything. He says, do it seven times. So he goes out, a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, nothing. He goes out and looks, and the seventh time he sees, and he comes back, he says to Elijah, I see a little rain cloud. It's about the size of my hand. And Elijah says, go tell King Ahab to get on his chariot and start heading down the mountain. Now, why in the world would he tell Ahab to get in his chariot and start heading down the mountain? Because Elijah knows what's going to happen. Now, they've been in severe drought. Is it a challenge to take a chariot along a path? Not at all. What would challenge the chariot on the path? If the path got, yell it out, muddy, right? If the path got muddy. Elijah is not at all concerned about that path getting muddy. There's this tiny little grain cloud that showed up over the lake about the size of the servant's hand. But Elijah says, Let's start making preparations. And it's just a short time later that heavy rains are falling down upon the people. Falling down upon the people. Everyone is included in this blessing from God. All 12 tribes, even a king like Ahab who's been trying to lead the people away. And in the midst of that, we're called into this story to realize that's a part of our worship life. To know that as we're even here on a Sunday morning, we're here because we understand there is one true God. But we know throughout our week that there's all kinds of things that are trying to command our attention. All sorts of things that would try to take us away from God. And yet for some reason today, you decided to be here in this place. You decided to turn on your, your TV or your computer and watch the live stream of this because there's something there, something that you recognize. And, and I'm guessing that some of you either last night or not this morning when you woke up went, oh, there's going to be a children's story at church. We got to get there. Now, some of you with the young kids, you might have thought that's exactly what it was. But others of you, I think, just said, we have to be there because we have a God that's truly worthy of worship. We have a God in whose presence we need to find ourselves in, in an intentional way because we know that we come before God and we know that the power that God can have for our lives and we know that, that along the way some random things might happen and, and we can find blessings in them or we can just see that they happen naturally in the midst of how God orders the world. But there are times when it is so evident what God is up to and what God is doing. It's amidst of those days that we can do no other but to worship a God who would be there for us. For worship, in a sense, is one of those times when we just offer our blessing to God. We just offer whatever we have and we give it over to God. Because we know that when we do that, 
God will return those blessings to us. When we know that there is one true God, only one God truly worthy of worship, and we bring that blessing to God, that God will always return those blessings to us. And so we could do no other but to find a place to worship. Amen.